This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, February 10th, 2019, episode 66, concerning a man consumed by mice and other plagues. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This first episode of 2019 is inspired by current events in my life. Uh, So no walls, no fiscal policies, no dissolutions of international agreements, uh, not those kinds of current events. Although thinking about it, our text does begin adjacent to a political crisis. The events presented in our text for today take place during the reign of the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV in the second half of the 11th century, as recounted by William of Malmesbury. Emperor Henry presided over the investiture controversy, uh, which produced one of our major rounds of medieval popes versus anti-popes. It's not the one that gave us one pope in Rome and another in Avignon, uh, nor is it the first of these crises, but it was a major moment for the Holy Roman Empire. William of Malmesbury gives Henry one of his typical on-the-one-hand-but-on-the-other style portraits. Uh, Initially, he tells us that, quote, This, too, was the period in which Germany for fifty years bewailed the pitiable and almost fatal government of Henry. He was neither unlearned nor indolent, but so singled out by fate for every person to attack that whoever took up arms against him seemed, to himself, to be acting for the good of religion. William bemoans the emperor's support of Guibert of Ravenna, a.k.a. the anti-pope Clement III, but tacks on some balancing praise. Quote, Notwithstanding these circumstances, there were many things praiseworthy in the emperor. He was eloquent, of great abilities, well-read, actively charitable, had many good qualities, both of mind and person, was ever prepared for war, insomuch that he was sixty-two times engaged in battle, was equitable in adjusting differences, and when matters were unsuccessful, he would prefer his griefs to heaven and wait for redress from thence. Many of his enemies perished by untimely deaths. We're about to hear one of those untimely deaths. It's unclear to me what William is trying to convey with this tale. Uh, On first glance, the story would appear to say that God helped punish Henry's enemies, which means God was on Henry's side. So, is that an endorsement of the anti-pope? That doesn't fit with William's judgment elsewhere. Is it just a validation of the authority of the Holy Roman Empire, even one whose government was almost fatal? My guess is that this is just a manifestation of William's magpie instincts. The story is too good not to tell, so he's going to tell it, even if it creates some mixed messages. As for my own recent experiences that prompted me to select this text, uh, we'll come to those afterwards. So now, let's hear from William of Malmesbury's Gesta Regum Angelorum, as translated by John Sharp and J.A. Giles. I have heard a person of the utmost veracity relate that one of Henry's adversaries, a weak and facetious man, while reclining at a banquet, was, on a sudden, so completely surrounded by mice as to be unable to escape. So great was the number of these little animals that there could scarcely be imagined more in a whole province. It was in vain that they were attacked with clubs and fragments of the benches which were at hand, and though they were for a long time assailed by all, 
yet they wreaked their deputed curse on no one else, pursuing him only with their teeth and with a kind of dreadful squeaking. And although he was carried out to sea about a javelin's cast by the servants, yet he could not by these means escape their violence. For immediately so great a multitude of mice took to the water that you would have sworn the sea was strewn with chaff. But when they began to gnaw the planks of the ship, and the water rushing through the chinks threatened inevitable shipwreck, the servants turned the vessel to the shore. The animals, then also swimming close to the ship, landed first. Thus the wretch, set on shore and soon after entirely gnawed in pieces, satiated the dreadful hunger of the mice. I deem this the less wonderful because it is well known that in Asia, if a leopard bite any person, a party of mice approach directly to discharge their urine on the wounded man and that a filthy deluge of their water attends his death. But if, by the care of servants driving them off, the destruction can be avoided during nine days, then medical assistance, if called in, may be of service. My informant had seen a person wounded after this manner, who, despairing of safety on shore, proceeded to sea and lay at anchor, when immediately more than a thousand mice swam out, wonderful to relate, in the rinds of pomegranates, the insides of which they had eaten, but they were drowned through the loud shouting of the sailors. For the creator of all things has made nothing destitute of sagacity, nor any pest without its remedy. During this emperor's reign flourished Marianus Scotus, first a monk of Fulda, afterwards a recluse at Mentz, who, by renouncing the present life, secured the happiness of that which is to come. During his long-continued leisure, he examined the writers on chronology and discovered the disagreement of the cycles of Dionysius the Little with the evangelical computation. Wherefore, reckoning every year from the beginning of the world, he added 22, which were wanting, to the above-mentioned cycles. But he had few or no followers of his opinion. Wherefore, I am often led to wonder why such unhappiness should attach to the learned of our time, that in so great a number of scholars and students, pale with watching, scarcely one can obtain unqualified commendation for knowledge. So much does ancient custom please, and so little encouragement, though deserved, is given to new discoveries, however consistent with truth. All are anxious to grovel in the old track, and everything modern is contemned. And therefore, as patronage alone can foster genius, when that is withheld, every exertion languishes. But, as I have mentioned the monastery of Fulda, I will relate what a reverend man, Walker, prior of Malvern, whose words, if any disbelieve, he offends against holiness, told me had happened there. Not more than fifteen years have elapsed, said he, since a contagious disease attacked the abbot of that place, and afterwards destroyed many of the monks. The survivors at first began each to fear for himself, and to pray and give alms more abundantly than usual. In the process of time, however, for such is the nature of man, their fear gradually subsiding, they began to omit them. The cellarer more especially, who publicly and absurdly exclaimed that the stock of provision was not adequate to such a consumption, that he had lately hoped for some reduction of expense from so many funerals, but that his hopes were at an end if the dead consumed what the living could not. 
It happened on a certain night, when from some urgent business he had deferred going to rest for a long time, that, having at length dispatched every concern, he went towards the dormitory. And now you shall hear a strange circumstance. He saw in the chapter house the abbot and all who had died that year, sitting in the order they had departed. When affrighted and endeavoring to escape, he was detained by force. Being reproved and corrected after the monastic manner with a scourge, he heard the abbot speak precisely to the following effect, that it was foolish to look for advantage by another's death when all were subject to one common fate, that it was an impious thing that a monk who had passed his whole life in the service of the church should be grudged the pittance of a single year after his death, that he himself should die very shortly, but that whatever others might do for him should redound only to the advantage of those whom he had defrauded, that he might now go and correct by his example those whom he had corrupted by his expressions. He departed and demonstrated that he had seen nothing imaginary as well by his recent stripes as by his death, which shortly followed. So, there are some warnings for you. Don't try to profit off the dead, and don't um, be an enemy of Emperor Henry IV, I guess. When William gets to the ghosts, he gives that little prefatory comment, and now you shall hear a strange circumstance, as our translators put it. Uh, what William actually says is, et eci rem mirum auditurus es, and behold, you will hear a marvelous thing, a rem miram. Mira are marvels, wonders. That's the word we usually see when a chronicler includes these kinds of events. This is the category that often covers everything from natural wonders to exotic animals to monsters and ghosts. We do get a sense that, for William, there's a sharper distinction between the natural and supernatural than we maybe see elsewhere, since he tells us that as far as the story of the freak mouse attack, idiominus hoc mirum judico, therefore I judge this less marvelous because he can place this mouse swarming into the context of natural history and leopard urine and all that. It's an interesting qualification, um, just because there is a lot of scholarly discussion of Mira accounts and how there's no sharp line between natural and supernatural in the medieval mind. Uh, the divide is between the natural and the divine, or the demonic. Anything that doesn't come straight from heaven or hell is, however magical-seeming, part of creation and nature. But this little moment in William suggests some sharper delineation than has maybe been generally credited. I was drawn to this mouse story, as I alluded to at the start of the episode, because I am in the middle of my own mouse invasion. You might have heard about the extreme cold the Midwest experienced this January. Well, a little colony of deer mice at least I hope it's little, uh, moved into my kitchen. I won't go into this whole mouse saga, um, but I got myself some live traps, and the same night I put out two of them, I caught two extremely cute little mice. Um, yes, deer mice also carry hantavirus, which mitigates the cuteness a bit, but they have these big heads and big eyes, not the little beady eyes of house mice. They were very charming. 
They made me very glad I'd opted for live traps, um, even if I was maybe condemning them to an icy death when I released them out into the frozen woods. Uh, but I figure I at least gave them a fighting chance, um, which was nice of me, given that all they gave me were heaps and heaps of mouse droppings all in my kitchen drawers. Where my utensils are. Ugh. Uh, anyway, looking at these rather cute mice made me wonder about medieval reactions to mice. One has to imagine they lived in much more close contact with mice than we do. Peasants basically shared housing with their own livestock in many cases, uh, so mice come with that. Mice live in thatching. Mice are attracted to food that can't be stored in sealed or refrigerated conditions. There had to be tons of mice underfoot all the time. Would you maybe develop a kind of tolerance for them? Would you feel about them maybe more like we feel about squirrels? Could medieval mice have a more positive public image than they do today in our more sanitized lives? Could you maybe have a cute mouse pet if you're a medieval child? An essay by Lisa J. Kaiser on mice in medieval culture and literature dashed my expectations to pieces. Judeo-Christian theological attitudes are antagonistic to mice. Mice are designated as unclean in Leviticus, and theologians associated them with greediness and theft in sermon stories. Augustine and other theologians denied them space on Noah's Ark, classing them as being of that class of vermin that are spontaneously generated from the earth and from garbage, and which therefore didn't need to be preserved two by two. Popular attitudes are preserved in how mice are represented in beast fables, which reject any idea of murine human cohabitation. Mice are unequivocally treated as intruders into human spaces who are breaching the natural order when they do so. Now, the fables we have largely come from a monkish or courtly literary tradition, so they're not folklore per se, but they are certainly shaped by popular sentiment. According to Kaiser, even when you do encounter sympathetic mice in these stories, mice victimized by predators or mice as allegories for the soul, these depictions still come with an emphasis on containing mice in the natural world or chastising their intrusion into human spaces and especially our food stores. So in the end, it does appear to be a case of familiarity breeding contempt rather than affection which I guess makes sense. It's not like people who live in tropical places with constant swarms of mosquitoes develop some cultural fondness for mosquitoes and think they're cute. Uh, pests tend to stay pests. But how did medieval people deal with mice? The classic spring-loaded mousetrap is an invention of the 19th century, so before this better mousetrap was made, what were people using? Well, for the most part, not traps. There's some reference to things that appear to be deadfall traps, uh, you know, prop up a heavy piece of wood or stone with a stick with bait tied to it. Uh, mouse goes for the bait, dislodges the stick, or sometimes a second stick that's propping up the main stick, depending on the configuration of the trap, uh, but knocks the stick over and squish. The weight falls down on the animal. Um, they sometimes used bird lime uh, as essentially a kind of glue trap. There are also a variety of live traps dating from antiquity through the Middle Ages and up to today. Uh, in fact, they're easier to make than lethal traps because all you have to do is make a container, um, you can make it out of pottery even, with a door that can be triggered to close, either by gravity or using a wound-up thread mechanism, which would be the precursor to the metal spring. 
As you get into the Renaissance and beyond, you'd start to see more innovation in a whole range of rather nasty killing traps, including choking traps and impaling traps, uh, and all sorts of clockwork horrors. But you don't actually find that much reference to traps in medieval sources. Instead, you most often find two primary methods of dealing with mice. The first is poison. Mix a bit of poison like aconite into a little pile of grain, or plug up a mouse hole with poisonous leaves. The other way is to have some cats around. I don't know that they had any awareness of the dangers of doing these two things at the same time, uh, you know, inadvertently poisoning their cats by poisoning their prey, uh, but attitudes to cats, at least in Western Europe, remained fairly utilitarian through the medieval period, so they might not have been too bothered either way. At least not farmers trying to keep rodents out of their granaries. As a little supplement to our rather short William of Malmesbury excerpt, I thought I'd include a companion text, this time a biblical text that references, albeit a bit obliquely, a plague of mice. Kaiser cites this story as part of the background for medieval attitudes. Um, now, depending on the nature of your religious upbringing and what parts of the Bible were emphasized in it, you'll either go, oh, that old story, or you'll go, what did I just hear? Uh, or you might be in the middle, like me, not actually familiar with the story, uh, and a little bit startled by the content of the story, but ultimately not that surprised to hear this sort of thing coming from the Bible. So this comes from 1 Samuel, namely chapters 4 through 6, and it details how the Israelites lost the Ark of the Covenant for a few months to the Philistines. To keep it medieval, I'll be reading from the 14th century Wycliffe translation of the Bible, as modernized by Terence P. Noble, um, and as a bit of a composite between the earlier and later Wycliffe versions. Uh, afterwards, we'll do a little bit of comparison with some later translations. But here's the story. And it was done in those days the Philistines came together into battle, for Israel went out against the Philistines into battle and pitched their tents at Ebenezer. And the Philistines came into Aphek and prepared the battle array against Israel. And when the battle was begun, Israel turned their backs to the Philistines, and about four thousand men were killed that day in that battle in every part of the field. And then the people of Israel returned to their tents. And the men of great age, that is, the elders of Israel, said, why did the Lord let us be defeated today by the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh and have it come here into our midst so that it can save us from the hand of our enemies. Therefore the people sent into Shiloh, and they took from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts that sat on cherubim. And Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come into the tents, all Israel cried out with a great cry, and the earth sounded. And the Philistines heard the sound of their cry, and they said, And what is this sound of a great cry from the Hebrews' tents? And then they knew that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come to Israel's camp. And the Philistines dreaded, and said, God is come into their tents. And they wailed, and said, Woe to us, for so great outjoying was not there yesterday, and the third day passed. 
Woe to us! Who shall keep us from the hand of these high gods? These be the gods that smited Egypt with all vengeance in the desert. Philistines, take ye courage and be ye men, otherwise ye shall serve as slaves to the Hebrews like they have served you. Yea, be ye of good courage and fight ye against Israel. Then the Philistines fought, and Israel was overcome, and each man fled into his tent, and there was a great slaughter, and thirty thousand of the footmen of Israel fell down. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were dead. And a man of Benjamin ran from the battle array, and came into Shiloh in that day, with his cloth rent and with his head besprinkled with dust. And when he arrived, Eli sat on a seat, looking toward the road, for his heart was fearing for the ark of the Lord. And after that that man had entered, he told what had happened to the men of the city, and then all the city yelled. And Eli heard all the yelling, and he said, What is the meaning of this noise? And the man hasted and came and told to Eli. And Eli was of fourscore years and eighteen, and his eyes had dimmed, and he might not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he that came from the battle, and I am he that fled today from the battle array. To whom Eli said, My son, what is done there? And he that told answered, and said, Israel hath fled before the Philistines, and a great falling is made in the people of Israel. Furthermore, and thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, be dead, and the ark of God is taken. And when he named the ark of God, Eli fell from the seat backward beside the door, and was dead, for his neck was broken. For he was an eld man, and of great age, and he deemed Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, and nigh the childbearing. And when the message was heard that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law was dead, and also her husband, she bowed herself down and childed, for suddenly her pains came upon her. And in that moment of her death, the women that stood about her said to her, Dread thou not, for thou hast childed a son. And she answered not to them, neither she took heed. And she called the child Ichabod, that is, without glory, and said, Now the glory of the Lord hath been taken away from Israel. For the ark of God was taken, and her father-in-law and her husband were dead. And she said again, The glory of God hath been taken away from Israel, for the ark of God hath been taken from us. And the Philistines took the ark of God, and carried it away from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God, and brought it into the temple of Dagon, and set it beside Dagon. And when the men of Ashdod had risen early in the t'other day, lo, Dagon lay low in the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and restored him in his place. And again they rose early in the t'other day, and they found Dagon lying on his face upon the earth before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and the two palms of his hands were broken off, and were lying upon the threshold. And the stock alone of Dagon was left in his place. For this cause the priests of Dagon, and all that enter into his temple, tread not upon the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. Forsooth, the hand of the Lord was made grievous upon the men of Ashdod, and he destroyed them, and he smote Ashdod and the coasts thereof in the more privy part of their tail ends. And when the men of Ashdod saw such vengeance taken upon themselves, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain among us, for his hand is hard upon us and upon our god Dagon. 
And they sent for and gathered together all the princes of the Philistines, and said to them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the men answered, The ark of the God of Israel should be taken to Gath. And so they took the ark of the God of Israel there. And while they led it about, the hand of the Lord was upon all the cities about, of full great slaughter. And he smote men of each city from a little man till the moor, and the lower entrails of them waxed rotten and came forth. And the men of Gath took counsel, and they made to themselves seats of skins or cushions. Therefore they sent the ark of the Lord into Ekron. And when the ark of the Lord had come into Ekron, men of Ekron cried out and said, They have brought to us the ark of God of Israel, that he slay us and our people. And they sent for and gathered together all the princes of the Philistines, and they said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away, and let it return to its own place, so that it shall not kill us and our people. For the fear of death was made in all the city, and the hand of the Lord was very grievous there. And the men that were not dead were smitten in the privy parts of their buttocks, and the yelling of each city went up into heaven. Therefore the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And after these things, the Philistines called together the priests and the false diviners and asked, What shall we do with the ark of God? Tell us how we should send it back to its own place. Who said, If ye return the ark of the God of Israel, do not ye send it back without a gift, but send ye it back with what ye owe for your sin, and then ye shall be healed, and ye shall know why his hand goeth not away from you now. And they said, What is it that we ought to yield to him for the trespass? And they answered to them, By the number of the provinces of the Philistines, you shall make five golden arses and five golden mice, for one vengeance was to all of you and to your wise men either princes. And ye shall make the likeness of your arses and the likeness of the mice that destroyed your land, and ye shall give glory to the God of Israel, if in hap he withdraw his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Why be ye stubborn or stiff-necked like Egypt and the Pharaoh were stubborn or stiff-necked? For after God had struck them, did they not let God's people go, and they went away? Now therefore take ye and make a new wain or wagon, and join ye therein two kine having calves, on which kind no yoke was ever put, and close ye the calves at home. And ye shall take the ark of the Lord, and ye shall set it in the wain, and ye shall put in a little coffer at the side of the ark, the golden vessels which ye have paid to the Lord for your trespass, and deliver ye the ark that it go forth. And ye shall watch it, and truly, if it goeth up toward Beth Shemesh by the way of its coasts, then the Lord hath done this great evil to you. But if it go not there, then we shall know that the hand of the Lord did not touch us, and that this thing hath befallen to us all by happenstance. Then they did in this manner, and they took two kine that gave milk to their calves, and they joined them to the wain, and they enclosed their calves at home. And they put the ark of God upon the wain, and the little coffer that had the gold mice, and the likeness of their arses. And the kine went straightly by the way that leadeth to Beth Shemesh. And those kine went in one way going and lowing, and they bowed not neither to the right side nor to the left side, but also the wise men of the Philistines followed unto the coasts of Beth Shemesh. Forsooth, the men of Beth Shemesh reaped wheat in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they were joyful when they had seen it. And the wain came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stood there. And a great stone was there, and they cutted the wood of the wain, and putted the kine on that wood as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. 
And the deacons took down the ark of God, and the little coffer that was beside it, wherein the golden vessels were, and they putted those upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt sacrifices, and offered slain sacrifices in that day to the Lord. And the five princes of the Philistines saw it, and then returned to Ekron that day. Soothly, these be the golden arses which the Philistines yielded to the Lord for their trespass. Ashdod yielded one, Gaza one, Ascalon one, Gath one, Ekron one, and they also gave gold mice by the number of the Philistine cities governed by the five princes, from a walled city unto an unwalled town. And the great stone that was called Eben, on which they put the ark of the Lord, is there unto this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Forsooth, the Lord smote of the men of Beth Shemesh, for they had seen the ark of the Lord, and he smote of the people seventy men and fifty thousand of the poor. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who shall now stand in the sight of the Lord God of this holy thing, and to whom shall it go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Yerim, who said, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and take it away with you. So, if you compare this to the King James Version, or a more modern translation like the NIV or my usual go-to, the NSRV, you will find a few differences of rendering. And this mainly has to do with the major plague involved here, which is not the mice, but rather this disease of the lower regions. The King James Version uses a quaint term. They had emeralds in their secret parts and they make golden emeralds to offer in reparation alongside the golden mice. It sounds like just another bit of boring biblical jargon like cubit or rod or talent or ephod or tares, but if you slowly sound it out, you'll recognize what this word is. Emerod, hemorrhoid. And that is what it is, a now obsolete anglicization of the Greek word, which regained its more classical spelling during the neoclassicism of the Renaissance. And now the fact that the Philistines had to make special cushions to sit on becomes all the clearer. The translators in the NSRV use the less specific, but also more deadly sounding, tumors uh, for this affliction. And if we go back to the Latin Vulgate, we find that it goes for the specificity of buttocks and describes the golden anuses that were made, ani aurei. The Greek text of the Septuagint introduces much more clarity on the other side of the plagues uh, by introducing a phrase not found in other Hebrew sources. It adds in, quote, and mice sprang up in the midst of their country, end quote. Um, a natural inference from the requirement that appears later that the Philistines make the golden mice. Um, the swellings are described less clearly. We're told that God smote the men, great and small, tas hethras auton, or in their sitting places, or fundaments. Uh, the word hethra usually means an actual chair, or stool, or place where something sits or resides, or seat. Uh, so even the Septuagint is being a bit euphemistic here. But this euphemistic tendency goes right back to the Hebrew text. 
in the Masoretic text, the canonical written text, uh, it comes with these attached glosses, you might say, that specify differences between the unalterable written text and then what should actually be said aloud when reading the text to a general audience. Sometimes these are just grammatical or poetic adjustments, but there is a whole category of euphemistic changes. And this is what we have here in the story of the plagues. You get two different Hebrew words to describe the bodily affliction suffered by the Philistines. These are ophelim and tekorim. Uh, Pardon my guesswork Hebrew pronunciation there. According to a very interesting online article by Rabbi Zev Farber, uh, and there's a link to it you can find on our website, ophelim, the word in the written text, does literally mean swelling, and is the word our modern translators are rendering as tumor, but Farber notes that this word was also the word used for hemorrhoids, and the evidence that this is what it meant in this context, and not just some general swelling, is that the Masoretic commentary replaces it with tekorim, which means abscesses. The presence of the euphemistic alternative tells us that the original word was understood to not be appropriate for polite company and religious sanctity. And clearly, the King James translators understood this and didn't flinch away from the more direct terminology. In reading the modern translations, we might also bear in mind that English tumor is itself a direct borrowing from Latin and just means a swelling and did not mean cancer or tumor as a growth with the specificity of modern medicine. Tumor was just one of the great quadruplets of ancient medicine, rubor, dolor, calor, tumor, redness, pain, heat, and swelling, which remain the modern GP's old reliables for identifying injury and infection. Either way, the story does offer some food for thought, or at least goofy speculation. Uh, If you go with the tumor version, that adds this interesting layer of Chariots of the Gods-style extraterrestrial implications. What if the Ark was radioactive? Was it an alien weapon? Or did it contain the pieces of a radioactive meteorite that the Israelites picked up, thinking it was a gift from God? And if you embrace the hemorrhoids reading, then you can ponder an alternate version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, here's the Bible telling us exactly what happens to an enemy army that takes up the Ark. You don't get melted and electrocuted by ghosts. Those Nazis and evil French archaeologists are going to come down with a terrible case of piles. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. Don't look at it no matter what happens. Oh, and by the way, there's also some confusion over the number of Beth Shemeshites who are divinely struck down for looking at or into the Ark when it arrives in their country. Apparently, in the Hebrew, the phrasing does give these two numbers, 70 men and 50,000, which Wycliffe and the King James Version keep, uh, but many later translators drop the 50,000. And the argument is something like uh, that what the phrase means is God killed 70 leading men, uh, top men, you might say, who were so important that they were equivalent in value to 50,000 common people. Certainly, I've encountered similar kinds of phrases, so that seems plausible enough, but it also smacks of an effort to soften the story and make God look a little less monstrous. Uh, Hebrew readers out there will have to weigh in on this for me. And we've drifted a little bit away from our mouse theme, so I'll just throw out there on the subject of anatomical terms, 
that our word muscles comes from the Latin musculum, which means musculus, the diminutive of moose, mouse, uh, so little mouse. And muscles are called that presumably because a flexing muscle resembles the movement of a little mouse under the skin. That sounds kind of absurd and unlikely, uh, but this linguistic connection between the word for mouse and the word for muscle exists in other Indo-European languages, uh, so it seems to be a pretty real origin. Okay, we have our first riddle of 2019, and here it is. Mother gives birth to daughter, and daughter again to mother. Take a moment to think about it. Uh, Pause the show if you like. All right, this is one of the riddles of Claret. It's a classic paradoxical metaphor-style riddle. There are a number of plausible answers to this little metaphor, uh, but the one provided with the text is suitable for life under the shadow of the polar vortex. It is, water is changed into ice, and ice likewise into water. So the mother is water, and ice is the daughter. We'll have a new mystery word in our next episode. If you'd like to get a chance to ponder the mystery word or riddle a bit early, uh, at least when I remember to post it early, follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. And I know a number of you have far greater expertise in biblical studies than I do, so feel free to tweet at me with any corrections or clarifications uh, to my attempted explanation of 1 Samuel uh, and there's more information about this and every episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also support the show through Patreon. Just search there for Medieval Death Trip. Uh, William of Malmesbury was speaking as a philosopher when he said, And therefore, as patronage alone can foster genius, when that is withheld, every exertion languishes. That was true in the 12th century, and it's true today. My Patreon patrons are getting a new special bit of bonus content just for them, uh, a commentary track I've recorded for the 1981 movie Dragon Slayer, a seminal entry in the 80s sword and sorcery revival. For just a dollar a month, you can get that and all our bonus content so far, uh, including our audiobook of Jordanus's Descripta Mirabilia, or Wonders of the East. And lastly, I haven't made an appeal for iTunes reviews in a while. Uh, I'm presently on the academic job market, trying to find a full-time position somewhere. It's not easy to demonstrate the quality of this show in the concrete ways a hiring committee uh, normally sees. Uh, For contests and awards, we kind of fall in between the gaps. We're not journalistic enough for most of the nonfiction podcast competitions and awards. Uh, Those tend to really be looking for public radio-style documentary storytelling. Uh, And in the U.S., at least, most of the other awards that are out there seem to be mostly reserved for L.A.-based podcasts hosted by comedians. Um, And I listen to and love lots of shows that have won awards in both of those genres, Uh, But it is hard to find opportunities for this kind of show to get that kind of recognition. Uh, So user reviews are the best kind of evidence I have that this show is a worthwhile endeavor. So if you like the show and haven't rated it on iTunes or other platforms, um, though candidly, iTunes is the only one I can reasonably cite on an application. uh, But if you haven't rated us or written a review, even a short one, you could actually really help me out. And tweeting about the show helps too, of course. 
So I'll be back with a new episode around Valentine's Day. Until then, keep your mouse holes stuffed with oleander leaves, keep warm, or cool if you're in the southern hemisphere or the tropics, and thanks for listening. <laughs>